would turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, begin reading verse 1 and continue on through verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading. And the preaching of his word. You know, long before the, the woke movement and the Me Too movement rocked our country to its foundations, the politically correct movement, if you will, came into vogue in the early 90s in one of the books that uh, sort of shown, had shown that it was part of our culture was a book by James Fenn Garner, a uh, American writer and satirist who had given us uh, a, a really poking fun at this new way of thinking in his book, Politically Correct Bedtime Stories. Some of you might be familiar with it. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 65 weeks. But he's not really telling new stories, if you will, but just rather retelling classic fairy tales with a new twist for modern times. Instead of the hero being the hero, the hero becomes the villain, the villain becomes the hero. And in every situation, seemingly, each enlightened female character rescues themselves rather than looking to a man for help. Take Little Red Riding Hood, for example. 
uh, in the retelling of the story, when Little Red was on her way to Grandma's house, she was accosted by the wolf, who said to her simply, You know, my dear, it isn't safe for a little girl to be walking through these woods alone. But, of course, she was offended by his sexist remark in the extreme. She says, but I will ignore it because of your traditional status as an outcast from society, the stress of which has caused you to develop an alternative and yet entirely valid worldview. Later on, when the wolf seeks to eat Little Red, as he has eaten her grandmother, the woodsman burst into the house with an axe to help her, but again, uh, she is offended by this patriarchal act stating that women and wolves can solve their own problems without any man's interference. And at that moment, the empowered grandmother in the belly of the beast, hearing this rousing speech from her enlightened granddaughter, leaps out of the mouth of the beast, takes the axe from the woodsman, and chops off the head of the woodsman. And then, well, basically for his politically correct offenses, then Little Red Riding Hood, her grandmother, and the wolf live happily ever after in their new alternative household together. If you haven't heard these stories, they are quite funny. Um, but of course, back then, that was meant to be satire in the 90s. Some 30 years later, the politically correct police are coming to everyone's household to make sure that you say exactly what you need to say. Otherwise, they'll be looking you up online and finding something you said 30 years ago to make sure that you are in line and not uh, in the same vein as the woodsman. And because that meta narrative in our culture is changing so drastically, so quickly, I found that it's difficult for a lot of young people today to appreciate stories like Ruth because they can't see it the same way that most of us would have seen it for many, many years and many generations prior uh, to this new way of thinking. Uh, for what we have here is, is two widows who are in need of charity. And they're both given grace and favor by a man who redeems them, saves them in more ways than one. And so you can see how this way of thinking would be offensive uh, to a young woman today who was bought into this feminist movement. Um, but I, I want to tell you from the very beginning that that movement runs counter to Christianity in every possible way. That if a woman cannot look for help outside of herself, she will never understand what it means to trust in Christ. And that's a huge problem. There's a clash of cultures that's taking place. And I want to prove that to you this morning by doing a character study on Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, the praiseworthy woman, and Boaz, the worthy man. So let's take a closer look first at Ruth, the Moabitess, who is indeed a, a woman worthy of praise. As you know, in the English Bible, uh, the book of Ruth takes place just after the book of Judges. It follows along in chronological order, as a Greek mind would have it, as the New Testament would, uh, the writers of the New Testament later would put the Old Testament together in the Greek, and they would see that this is taking place at the same time. So let's put Ruth right after Judges, because it's happening during the time of the Judges. But that's not how the Hebrew mindset works. At least that's not the primary focus. Instead of placing things chronologically, they often would think thematically. So in the Hebrew Bible, you have three main sections. You have the law the prophets, and the writings. And in that latter section, the writings, is where the book of Ruth takes place. 
and it occurs just after the book of Proverbs. Now, what do you remember that occurs in the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs? We have a very beautiful acrostic poem that exemplifies the worthy wife. And then all of a sudden, we're introduced in the first chapter of Ruth, an example of this worthy woman that is worthy of praise in every way. And that's what we're seeing uh, from the very beginning. Now, because of that, we're, we're seeing a, just a, an awesome example of a, of a woman who loves the Lord and who knows how to love her neighbor as herself. In verse 2, you'll notice when we listen in on Ruth's dialogue with Naomi uh, in the town of Bethlehem, she says to her mother, simply, let me go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, of course, you have to remember this is the time of the barley harvest. After a number of years of famine, finally they have a healthy and plentiful crop. And the Lord desired that all of his people should eat, even the poor should not go hungry. Now that didn't mean, though, that all of a sudden he would just drop manna from the sky and make sure that the poor ate their fill. Nor did it mean that he would require every single Israelite who had money to give their money over to the poor. There was no redistribution of wealth scheme going on here whatsoever. But rather, there was a more of a work-to-welfare program that was implemented in the, in the law of Moses. I'll give you uh, two passages, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, explain the background to this practice that they kept uh, in the Old Testament in the land of Israel. The law simply stated this, that when the owner of a field went to reap his harvest, he was not to reap the edges of his field, nor was he to go back over the field a second time for, to, to collect any sheaf that had been missed or that had been forgotten. But rather, he was, allowed, he was to allow the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow to take those sheaves for themselves in order that they might eat and survive. Now, Ruth left her place, wherever she was staying with her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, early that morning. And she came upon this field that was ready for harvest in order that she might find work so that her family could eat. And where she did, from sunrise to sunset, the whole day, she is not really taking but maybe one break in the morning and then later on for lunch and supper, but she basically is working all day except for the time where she's trying to find some rest for her weary body. Now, most of us don't do gleaning today, but from what I can gather, it seems to be a pretty difficult task, especially in the hot sun, uh, especially for the poor because they weren't allowed to glean the way the regular reapers were and just go in rows and immediately collect the, the, the fruit of the harvest. Instead, they were sent to the very corners of the fields, and the corners of the fields is where they had the, the, the greatest thicket, uh, and there was often thorns and briars and all sorts of things, and they would have to go through a lot more effort. It would be painful to get the, the grain that they needed. Similarly, the, 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 the sheaves that were left behind were far and few between. You'd have to do a lot of walking throughout the day to pick up the things that had been dropped. So indeed, it was a, it was a long day's worth of work. And this hard-working woman, Ruth, is willing to do it. Again, she's, she's exemplifying the Proverbs 31 woman in that regard. Similar, if you remember, to Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Do you remember in that passage of Genesis chapter 24? I remember preaching on this a number of years ago. I was fascinated by the amount of work this woman was doing. If you remember, Abraham's servant had gone up to her town to look for his bride, and to look for a bride for Isaac. 
And he had prayed in advance, saying, you know, whichever woman offers me water but also offers to water my camels, she's the one. And he would give her the golden uh, earrings and all these other jewels in that sense. Uh, but if you remember, Abraham's servant had ten camels. That's a lot of camels. The average camel can drink about 50 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And her jar probably could carry about five gallons of water at a time. She would dump her, her jar of water into the trough. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the only problem is if you look closely at Genesis chapter 24, you'll notice that she's having to descend into the well to get the water. So she's going down a number of steps and then coming back up, filling the trough with water, and doing it again and again and again. Uh, on average, uh, someone like a, maybe a Dan Canars could figure this out, but it's probably about a hundred trips up and down the well to give the water to the camels. Now, whatever view you might have of ancient women, or even women today, as being these dainty little women who stay at home and just cross-stitch all day, that was not the biblical view of womanhood. Certainly, they were hard workers. They did their part. Even in regards to widows, you'll notice in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul recommends only enrolling widows on the widow list who were hard workers. He says of them, only those who have brought up children, only those who have shown hospitality, only those who have washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted themselves to good works can qualify to be on the widow's list. So again, it's not some lazy woman who, who's not been willing to do anything. All of a sudden, she just gets a free check. That's not how it works. These types of good works were required of both men and women. Uh, that was the, the natural outcome of someone who had trusted in the Lord, that they would be someone willing to work then for the Lord and on behalf of their neighbor. And we see this in the passage that Mark read earlier in Romans chapter 16. Uh, it's a long list of men and women that Paul is commending for their hard work. The first person, if you remember, is Phoebe. Phoebe, he says, is a woman who ought to be received in a way worthy of the saints because of all her hard work and all that she has given for the sake of the Lord to his church. Same way he mentions Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember. Again, he talks about their co-laboring with him in Christ. Again, tent makers in the same way that he was, working hard for the Lord. And then he mentions a whole slew of other people, always for their faithfulness and their hard work. So certainly Ruth was this type of worker, and she had gleaned in the fields from sunrise to sunset. Then, what we read in the text is, as the sun is going down, then she beats out all of the grain that she had gleaned, and it comes out to an ephah of barley, which she then hoisted on her shoulders and carried back into town. Now, if any of you ladies, ladies here this morning have had dogs, and have ever had to buy one of those really big bags of dog food, uh, like say you go to Walmart, they're, they're about somewhere between 45 to 50 pounds. Well, a, an eve of barley would be about close to 70 pounds. Now, I think most of us would be very glad to have a cart to push that dog food around the store in. This woman is carrying a 70, up, upwards of 70 pound bag on her shoulders from the fields back into the town after having worked 10 to 12 hours out in the fields. Clearly, this woman was a woman who loved the Lord and who loved Naomi, was willing to work to show her appreciation. But Ruth was also a humble woman, a very humble woman. When she approached the foreman of the fields at the beginning of the day, here's what she said to him. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Notice she's not expecting a handout. 
She's not expecting anyone to give her anything. She simply wants the opportunity to work in order to eat. And she's granted that opportunity. We see in the text that when she first uh, leaves Naomi, she says she, she hopes that someone would have favor upon her. Now, she doesn't mean that someone's going to give her something, but rather just give her an opportunity to work because she's a foreigner. That there would be many people that would treat her poorly and, and consider her an outcast and not give her the same opportunity, perhaps, as some of the other Israelites would be given. But notice again, she's willing to take whatever is given to her. Very humble woman. In fact, she reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman. Do you remember when uh, she has the demon-possessed daughter and she goes to the Lord Jesus and she, she bows down to the ground and she says, Lord, please heal my daughter. Uh, cast the, the demon out of my daughter. And if you remember, Jesus said to her, seemingly in a mean way, if we misinterpret Christ, where he says that he has only come to the lost sheep of Israel and it was not right to take the children's bread uh, uh, and give it to the dogs, he says. And immediately, the Syrophoenician woman agrees with him. And she says, yes, that's true, Lord. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that's exactly what Ruth is doing here. That the crumbs that have fallen from the table in the fields, that's what she's willing to gather for the sake of her self and, and for Naomi. Then later on, when Boaz begins to show many kindnesses to Ruth, She's genuinely surprised by it. Uh, because, again, she's not expecting that. She's just expecting, hopefully, that someone will have mercy on her and let her work. But he's doing all these things in addition to that, being merciful with over an abundance of mercy. But she says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Indeed, Ruth was not a proud woman, uh, but one who had humbled herself for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of her household. Keep in mind that gleaning itself would have been an embarrassment even back then to anyone because basically they're having to admit they're, they're destitute and they have no other means of provision. And so they're having to go out and, and depend upon the, the goodwill of their neighbor. But that didn't hinder her. That didn't. She didn't have such a, a, a proud heart that, that would hinder her from doing this type of labor. She was willing to do whatever it took, uh, again, out of love for the Lord and for Naomi. Now, although the foreman was the first to recognize uh, Ruth's character in this way, he says he, he saw her working all day, only taking one short break. As soon as, as soon as Boaz sees this, he also recognizes her character, and he praises her for it, and uh, for her commitment to the Lord and to Naomi. He says in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I think we can misinterpret what he's saying here. Uh, in fact, I think you, you might say something like this. Perhaps Boaz is saying, well, good for you, Ruth. <laughs> God helps those who help themselves, and so I hope he helps you. Uh, it could be interpreted that way if you interpret it wrongly, according to our American mindset. Rather, what he's really saying to Ruth at this point is that, Ruth, because you have sought refuge under the wings of the Lord God, may he prove himself faithful to your trust. May he provide for you. May he bless you because you have taken shelter under his wings. Again, he's, he's picturing Ruth as this little helpless chick who needs to find refuge under the wings of the Lord. And Boaz is assuring her that because she has done that, the Lord will be faithful to her. Now again, <laughs> I can imagine the unbelieving feminists today taking great offense 
at that concept that uh, the idea that a woman was somehow weak and, and needed help outside of herself. In fact, you'll notice the question that he asked his foreman is not who is that woman in the sense of hubba hubba, who's that great good looking girl? But rather, he's saying, whose is that woman? His question is, who's protecting her? Who's helping her? Who's providing for her in that sense? Again, that in itself, I'm sure, would be offensive to the feminists today. But basically, it's the idea that he's trying to protect her out of love. Not because he's romantically attracted to her, but just because he loves his neighbor, he loves the Lord, wants to protect even this foreign woman. Now, this idea of the chick gathering underneath the wings of, of, uh, of its mother um, is not something that's made just for the women in society. It's also for the men as well. We'll notice that Ruth's great-great-grandson, David, would, would say in Psalm 17, verse 8, he would ask the Lord to hide himself also like a chick under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. It's not just women that need that sense of protection, that need that provision, that need that help. So do the men as well. You see, the, the, the lie of feminism, the lie of communism, and every other ism in our society today is simply this. They teach you that you are the only one who can help yourself. You're not to rely upon anyone else. You have to fight for what is yours. Everyone else is seeking to oppress you. No one is there to help you. You have to fight for your rights and have to fight for what is good in society. Christianity teaches the exact opposite. That there is someone who is there to help you. There is someone there who actually loves you. There is someone who is going to protect you from that type of oppression. Submit yourself to the Lord. Trust in Him. But again, that's considered the opium of the masses, right? That's what Karl Marx would teach. But if you don't see that, you will always be this person who's fighting against the world and seeing oppression everywhere you go. That's all you're going to see. Think of it this way. Uh, Jacob would be a great example uh, in the Old Testament. If you remember, Jacob was a fighter, constantly fighting for his rights. That's all he ever did. From the moment he was in the womb, he was fighting against his brother for ascendancy, right? All of his life he's fighting against his brother, then he's fighting against his uncle, uncle trying to get an advantage over his fellow man. That's his goal in life. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to lie. I'm going to steal. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to supplant you. That's what I'm going to do. It's only after the Lord confronts him in the middle of the night, if you remember, when he wrestles with him in the middle of the night and allows Jacob to get a sense of power for a few short minutes, and then the Lord just merely touches him in the hip socket, and wrenches it for the rest of his life. The rest of his life, Jacob is walking on a limp to be reminded that it was the Lord all along who had blessed him. It was the Lord all along who had done good by him. He, was, he did not get all these good things from his own fighting, but because the Lord had fought for him. Not because he was getting his own blessings, but the Lord had blessed him even from the womb. And that's why, if you remember, the Lord changed his name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God rather than one who fights with men. You see, the world doesn't get that, and that's why they have such a hard time with the gospel message, because they can't trust someone else. They have to trust in themselves, but it doesn't work that way. Indeed, it's only those who have understood their own weakness, those who have understood their need, and have fled to the Lord for refuge. Those are the ones that the scripture says are worthy of praise.
not because they're praiseworthy in themselves, but because they're so closely identified with the worthiness of the Lord. They have received His worth. They have received His blessing. They have received His favor. And as a result, we see them now being transformed into the same image where they're beginning to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because they have received the worthiness of the Lord through Christ. And we see that both in Ruth as well as in Boaz. They both are great examples of someone who is not worthy in and of themselves, but who has received the worthiness of God and therefore begins to walk in a worthy manner. But now let's consider for a moment something of the worthiness of Boaz. In the first verse of chapter 2, we're immediately introduced to this man of God when the narrator sets the scene by telling us that Naomi had a relative of her husband's who was a worthy man of the clan of Limelech named Boaz. Now, it's not until much later in the day that Boaz actually comes on the scene. We see him. Uh, but the narrator wants you to know immediately that this guy is different, that he is a worthy man, and that the Lord is going to do something amazing through him. But what does he mean by that when he says Boaz is a worthy man? We don't really use that terminology anymore. In fact, it, you, ever, you ever heard that recently? So-and-so is a worthy man. It's, it just doesn't exist in our culture today. It's like we don't believe it anymore. But in David's case, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, a servant had identified David as a worthy man, calling him a man of valor, a man prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and one with whom the Lord dwelt. Certainly, it's the same type of thing that uh, the author of Ruth is trying to say about Boaz, that, that he is a man in whom the Lord dwells. He's a worthy man, um, who, a man who, who walks both in the courage of the Lord as well as in the strength of the Lord. In fact, his name means strength, Boaz. In 1 Kings chapter 7, we're told of two great pillars, if you remember, uh, that hold up uh, the portico of the temple of God. The first one was named Yaquim, which means the Lord will establish. And the other one was named Boaz, which means in his strength. It's not that Boaz is strong in himself. It's not that any man is strong in himself, but rather he becomes strong through the strength of the Lord. And that's the point he's pointing out here in this passage, that he is walking in the strength of the Lord. And you'll see this even, even in how he greets his reapers at the beginning of the day. Notice how he, he talks to them. He's immediately pronouncing the Lord's blessing upon them, and they respond with the, with the blessing upon him as well. Again, we might assume that's just a platitude in Israel, but if you look throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, we see that this is consistent with his character, everything about him. He is full of the blessing of the Lord and wants to share that blessing with others. He's exuding godliness, offering mercy at every opportunity, uh, he's not merely looking to turn a profit in his business, but he's looking to profit the souls, even, of the men who are working underneath him. In the same way, he's doing that for Ruth as well. He's concerned about her welfare, not just about her food and the sense of her bodily nature, but also her spirituality, her purity, even her namesake. We'll see throughout the scripture, he's constantly concerned that the Lord's blessing would remain upon her. Again, uh, Boaz is looking at her not as a piece of property when he says, whose is she? But he's looking at her as a stranger in a foreign land who is susceptible to abuse, and he wants to protect her. Is that such a horrible thing? 
even though, again, that might be offensive to the feminists of today, common sense would tell you that any foreign woman in a strange land without connections, without family, is susceptible to abuse. Uh, we, we read just this weekend in Song of Solomon uh, how the, the beloved woman is out in search of her husband in the middle of the night, and we see the night watchmen beating her because they assume she's a woman of, of low standards and that they can get away with it. Uh, very common. You say, well, that was back then, not today. Well, what about our sex trafficking industry? It's ridiculous how quickly someone who has no connections and has, has demonstrated any aspect of, of weakness immediately, they're pounced upon by someone who is a wicked and, and seedy person. And so Boaz is trying to make sure that Ruth is, that Ruth is safe. And so he provides for her in that way, in the sense of justice. But in addition to his concern for her safety, he's also constantly just showing mercy upon mercy to her. As I already mentioned, the law of God commanded God's people to be merciful to strangers, to sojourners. But he did a lot more than that. Uh, given the fact, think of the circumstances, this is still the time of the judges, right? Where the average man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Boaz is different. It's also a time just after a famine where most men would be afraid to give away food because they're still trying to store up provision for themselves. They don't know what tomorrow might hold. Then in addition to that, you'd also get, take into account the fact that Ruth is not just a foreigner. She's a Moabitess, a sworn enemy of Israel. Any normal man, I think, a sinful man, would find a loophole to not help her in her situation because she's an enemy, you see. She doesn't, she's not entitled to the same benefits as the average uh, sojourner in that regard. But we see that Boaz is, is not just showing her mercy in the way that the Lord commands. He's greatly exceeding that requirement again and again and again. He's urging her, not just allowing her to stay in his land, but urging her to stay there and just glean in his fields, to stay with his women, uh, his servants, so that she's protected. Uh, then in addition to that, and allowing her to glean on the edges of the field and pick up the scraps, uh, literally he's telling his men to drop huge bundles so that she can pick anything she wants out of it. And then in addition to that, he's allowing this foreign woman to drink water with the men of Israel. Then on top of that, he's offering her bread and wine of his own store and provision, sharing with her his own roasted grain and allowing her to take the rest of it home to her mother again and again. He is showing her grace upon grace. If Ruth exemplifies the Proverbs 31 woman, surely Boaz embodies the Psalm 112 man. Are you familiar with that passage? There the psalmist says this, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land, for he is gracious and merciful and righteous, one who deals generously and conducts his affairs with justice. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Well, if that's too much, condense it down to Micah 6.8. Who is the worthy man? The one who does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with his God. Boaz certainly reflects that, does he not? Uh, someone might say, though, that Boaz is just doing this because uh, maybe he's attracted to Ruth. And, you know, maybe there's something in it for him. Maybe there's a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. 
nowhere in the text does it even hint at that at all. In fact, we'll see later on that when this young woman uh, proposes a possible connection maritally to him, he's shocked. Didn't even think this was even possible that such a young woman would be interested in, in him. He's not doing it because he wants something from her. He's helping her, giving mercy to her because the Lord has been merciful to him and because he has learned to love his neighbor as himself and, and sees her need and wants to, to help her in that need. Indeed, Boaz is a worthy man. Contrary to what the culture might teach you today, he's not a sexist. He's not an abuser. He's not an oppressor. He's not a terrorist or any other thing that someone will try to get you to believe because he had a position of power. But rather... He's a believer. And his faith was evidenced by his good works. Not only on behalf of the Lord, but on behalf of his neighbors, even the foreigners. Now again, that's not to say that Boaz was perfect. It was Ruth. They both were sinners saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yes, their faith was in Jesus Christ, the Christ who was to come. They both lived lives worthy of that gospel. They lived lives worthy of the calling that they had received in the Lord. But neither one of them were worthy in and of themselves. If I, if I just end the sermon right now and just say, you know what, you should just be Boaz. Men, women, just act like Ruth. You'll be good. Then I'm not really giving you the full account of the gospel of Christ. Because you can't be Boaz. You can't just be Ruth. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures are very clear that there's only one man who has ever lived who is considered the worthy man in that sense. Worthy not just in the, in the eyes of men and women, but in the eyes of God. And, and when we see, just as Boaz is introduced before he comes on the scene, so John the Baptist introduces Jesus, if you remember, before he comes on the scene. And he says of him that he who comes after me, even the strap of his sandals... I am not worthy to untie. He is worthy. Worthy of God. Later on, when Jesus actually does appear, he says of him, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He says, This is the one of whom I said, He ranks before me. He is the worthy one of God. It shouldn't surprise us, though, <laughs> that the whole world can't seem to find one single worthy man to look up to. Me included. They can't find one man to put their trust in. One man to put their faith in during this time. The reason for that is because that man is not living on earth currently. He's in heaven. And so they're looking all in the wrong places. They're thinking that there is no such thing as a worthy man because they're looking in the wrong place. We are meant to be reflections of that worthy man, both men as well as women. We're supposed to reflect the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the ultimate worthy one is in heaven. Thus, along with the world, as they sang earlier, we see the darkness, right? We see that the world is broken. We see how bad it really is and how men and women both don't really love their neighbor as they should. And along with the world, we're groaning, saying, is there anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone 
loving and just and, and merciful and wonderful. It just doesn't seem like that there is. It's interesting, though, the same question is being asked even in that song as reflected in the book of Revelation. They're asking the same question. Is there anyone worthy? In their context, they're saying, is anyone worthy to open the seal, to, to break the seal and, and open the scroll? What they mean by that is, is there anyone worthy of God who is both just and righteous and loving and wonderful that can even touch God's decrees and then administer them on his behalf? Every single person who would attempt it because of their sin would be disqualified. And the, the, the interesting thing is our, our culture is constantly, we're, we're judging everybody. Have you noticed that? <laughs> we'll, we'll just judge anybody. You're all horrible. We're all, we're all not worthy. But we're not looking in the right place. In heaven, they're asking that question, is anyone worthy? And then all of a sudden, we see Jesus the same Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed out years before. He's standing right in front of the throne. And immediately they break out in praise. He is worthy. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power and wealth and praise forever and ever. He is worthy. And that same one who is worthy... He longs to gather us all like chicks under his wings. But so many are not willing. He is the one worthy redeemer of men and women. He's the, the only one who can save. We all need a savior. Every single one of us. Christ is willing and he is able. Don't be proud any longer. Don't think I'm, I'm good enough. <laughs> I'm better than the other man. I'm, I'm sweeter than the other woman. It's just not true. There's only one worthy. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. He will prove himself faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that there's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there's truth to be found in a, a realm of darkness. That there's true wisdom and not this earthly wisdom this earthly emptiness that we hear daily in the news, online, in our normal conversations with each other. Lord, help us to look in the right place. You have revealed the Son of God to us. Open our eyes that we might see Him. Help us to see ourselves clearly and to judge ourselves accordingly that we might submit ourselves to the true judgment of God who judges all the world because of sin. Help us to look to the sinless one, the worthy one, who is the redeemer of mankind and womankind. 
Let's all look to him by faith, we pray.